Hope you, uh, you are doing well tonight. Um, pastor called uh, just a little while ago and uh, said uh, he is under the weather tonight. Um, he, he reassured us it is not the coronavirus, okay? Uh, he did say, however, it may be the Ramona virus. Um, so we're not really sure which one it is. But uh, anyway, uh, Pastor is, uh, he's not feeling real well. And so he'd appreciate any prayers um, you could send his way and uh, that the Lord would strengthen him for this upcoming Sunday. Um, I am so excited to be able to get, begin a new series with you all uh, on Wednesday nights. The name of the series is entitled For Our Good. And basically, um, I just want to give you a little bit of an overview before we jump into tonight's um, content. Um, the reason I decided to call it For Our Good is because I want to talk a lot about a lot of theological issues. Um, but oftentimes, when we talk about theology, it can seem very heady. It can seem uh, kind of abstract and kind of just so far out there that does it even apply to me? And the reality is, is that it does apply to us. It does matter uh, what we believe. It matters why we believe those things. And um, so we want to talk about the reasons that we believe these things, but we also want to talk about why they matter to us as individuals. And so I want to uh, just go ahead and give you a little bit of a preview for some uh, the next few weeks uh, in your notes. I think they're there tonight. We're going to focus on, on scripture. Uh, next Wednesday, we are going to talk about uh, a set of three, which is the Trinity, um, uh, the, the triune God. Uh, the following week, we're going to talk about the thread of salvation, not only in the life of Jesus, but the foreshadowings of Jesus all throughout uh, the Old and New Testaments. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, sonship, what it means to be an adopted son or daughter of God, the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to have a little bit of a break and pastor's going to jump in and then um, we're going to continue out that series. But um, I'm really excited about it. I think that there is some practical value that we can all take away from this and uh, just really want the Lord uh, to do good work. Uh, much of this material, written in a different way, obviously, is found in one of Pastor's books that he wrote a couple years ago called The Essentials. Uh, it is a fantastic book that you can find in our bookstore for next to nothing, I think five bucks. And uh, it is a phenomenal resource um, if you want to take advantage of that. Let's pray together before we jump in, and um, we'll go ahead and get started. Father, we do love you tonight. We thank you, Lord, that your presence is so evident here with us tonight. We want to ask you, Lord, that you will come and settle upon us, that you will help us to understand the reality of your word, that you will show us the supernatural power of your word. I want to ask you tonight, Lord, that even in the midst of this or as we leave, God, that you will help us uh, to really begin to revere your word again, to honor your word, to treasure your word like we've never done before, God. So please open the eyes of our heart. May our hearts burn within us as we open your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, if I, I know most of you, I feel like, but just for sake of a formal introduction, my name is Corey Henderson. Um, I have been serving here at Christian Life for the last nine years, uh, primarily as, as a youth pastor, and uh, just in January, I transitioned to a new role. Uh, my wife and I, Joy, have been in ministry for 17 years, and we have been married for 20 years. Um, she is the beautiful lady who is oftentimes uh, taking care of the children in, in nursery and stuff. Her name is Joy. And uh, I'm just so honored to be her husband. Um, we have four children. We have uh, Autumn, Easton, Ella, and Emery. Uh, we have a 19-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 3-year-old. So we were like, you know, some people just do it all at one time and get it over with. We were like, let's stretch it out for the rest of our lives. Um, so... Um, <laughs> We had these children, two of our children, our first two children, Autumn and Eastern, are biological children. And so a lot of our looks and mannerisms and different things like that have been, you know, imparted to them. And uh, it's without question, if you ever see either one of my children, there's no mistake that they're mine. Um, but uh, we have two children that are adopted. So they are not biologically ours, Ella and Emery. Um, but they are, they, and I'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but they are, it is as if they are biological children. Uh, there is nothing like the spirit of adoption when it comes on you. Um, Ella and Emery, though, um, all of my children, for that matter, have a very interesting history. 
Uh, my first two biological children, my, da uh, my daughter, um, or excuse me, my wife was told at the age of 16 that she would never be able to have children past the age of 20. Uh, they told her at the age of 16, mind you, uh, the doctor told her, if you want to have children, you better do it now. Uh, because after the age of 20, you won't be able to. And so uh, we got married when she was 20. And by the time she was 22, we had our first child. So there was a miraculous provision there. Um, a few years later, my son Easton was born, again, of miraculous provision. Uh, it was it was really amazing. Uh, our two uh, adopted daughters uh, were also uh, given to us through provision. Um, but what's interesting about um, the two adopted daughters is this, is that um, they both have the same birth mother, but they have different birth fathers. So Ella, you'll see, her birth mother is Caucasian, but her birth father is African-American. Emery, her birth mother is Caucasian, same birth mother, but her birth father, we believe, is some type of uh, Latino. We're not, we're not really sure, but, but we believe um, that, that's his origin. And so as my, my adopted daughters grow, it is phenomenal to be able to look at them and as they discover the differences between them and us, they are just becoming into that age. My daughter, um, Ella, uh, a couple of months ago, she looked, we were laying in bed, the, the whole family, we just, we lay in our bed a lot. We just love being together. And uh, we were laying down and she looked over and she took her arm and she put it against my arm and she said, I'm brown and you're not. And, and I thought, I thought, oh, wow, this conversation is coming quick, you know? And um, the reality is, is that all of my kids, all of us as individuals, we all have a fantastic history. Some of us don't know about our history, and therefore we struggle in the present because we don't understand our history. And so as my children grow, I'm going to do my best to make sure, my wife and I, that our children understand their history. Now, obviously, there are some things that we'll tell them later in life when they're old enough to handle it. But in order for them to appreciate the value of who they are and the value of their life, it's important that you understand their history. It just makes things it makes you feel like something is of more value when you understand where it's come from. The reality is, is that when we deal, when we deal with God's holy word, um, it is one thing for us to open and to read, and it is, it is fantastic just in and of itself. But when you really understand the history of the origins of scripture, it brings this thing to a whole nother level. It causes a level of deep appreciation and gratitude for the men and women of God who have gone before and given their lives in order so that we can have this word. And so tonight what we want to do is I want to, uh, as we talk about scripture, I want us to just give a, a kind of a, a 30,000 foot overview of the history of scripture before we get into some nuts and bolts. But I think it's so important. I'm going to take a little bit of time on the front end, okay, so don't freak out if we're just on one page and we only have 10 minutes left, we're gonna get you out on time. Um, but I wanna take the necessary time on the front end so that we can make sure that we understand the history of where scripture has come from. So as we, we look at this Bible, we understand that it's a collection of 66 books or 66 letters, uh, it's a compilation. Um, the Bible is an amazing, an, an amazing document. It was written by over 40 authors. The time it took for all of these scriptures to come into alignment was a period of over 1,400 years of time. The 40 authors wrote this from a lot of different places in several different languages. It was written in Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic. It was, it was written on three continents. It was written from Asia to uh, Africa to Europe. So uh, there, there is a lot going on in this Bible, culturally, historically, where it's from, the time age, there is so much diversity in the scripture, but what makes it amazing is that it's very congruent to tell the same story all the way throughout. The trajectory of the scripture from the very beginning in Genesis, the trajectory points to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture does. And so it's amazing when you consider, that is a, that is a, a phenomenal feat for these vast number of people in vast number of places to be able to put together a document like this 
not knowing each other through all of this history in order to create something that is fluid and it flows together for the purposes of God. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about how we, uh, how we got the Bible. Uh, we all know that in, in the book of Genesis, we begin with the creation. God creates the heavens and the earth. And uh, at some point in the book of Genesis, we see um, Abraham be born and Abraham he is the beginning of the nation of Israel. God says he is going to make him the father of many nations. And so it begins with Abraham, then goes to his sons, Isaac, uh, grandson Jacob. And the book of Genesis ends with uh, the events of the life of a guy named Joseph. Now, Joseph, most of you are familiar with this. Joseph was sold into slavery from uh, the land of Israel. He was sold into slavery from his jealous brothers, and he ended up in Egypt. The favor of God rested on Joseph, so he rose to basically the second in command of the whole land. God had so much favor on his life. Ultimately, what ended up happening is that the family from Israel, during a famine, they flocked to Egypt in order for Joseph to care for his family. So the book of Genesis ends with, with basically the nation of Israel, or the family of Israel, coming down and residing in Egypt. And the next book of the Bible is called Exodus. And so basically what has happened, from the end of the life of Joseph, there is a 400-year gap. And all of the people of Israel have lived in Egypt for the last 400 years. Unfortunately, they're no longer second in command. They have, over time, become slaves to the Egyptians. And so there are millions of Israelites who are, or Hebrews who are now the slaves in Egypt. And so in the book of Exodus, God raises up a, a prophet by the name of Moses. Moses rises up and he delivers the people out of Israel. As he delivers the people out of Israel, Moses goes through the wilderness for 40 years and God calls Moses to Mount Sinai one day. And in an encounter with God, Moses is given the first, the first scripture, the first holy scripture that we have in the version of the Ten Commandments. That's the first holy scripture we have. In the process of time, Moses begins to have other encounters with God. God begins to speak to him. Ultimately, Moses ends up writing the first five books of the Bible and maybe a couple of more. And so this is the very beginning phases of how we get the holy scriptures. Okay, so as time progresses and the people go back into the land of, of Israel, at a certain point, the people weren't really faithful to serve the Lord. And so God raises up a, a king for them because they, they basically demand a king. And so God allows King Saul to become the king and he doesn't do too well. So David rises up. David does relatively well and he has a son named Solomon. Solomon, at the end of his life, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? At the end of Solomon's life, something drastic happens. He decides what he's going to do is he is going to leave the kingdom to his son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam steps into place, but he is not a, a people-friendly politician, okay? He, he imposes taxes on the people. He makes it a little bit more difficult than his father and grandfather did for the people to live. And so a guy by the name of Jeroboam rises up against Rehoboam. And all of a sudden, what you have is this one kingdom. There's basically like this civil war and the kingdom divides into two. It divides into a north kingdom and a south kingdom. The northern kingdom is where Jer Jeroboam is and the southern kingdom is where Rehoboam is. And through the process of, of a lot of years, a couple hundred years, God is sending prophets. He's sending messengers to both of these kingdoms because both are not living with the Lord. They're not walking in right fellowship with the Lord. And so God begins to send prophets to all these, these different kingdoms. He sends uh, Jonah and some others to the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom. He sends Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. And as these messengers go and they, they, they plead with the people, turn back to the Lord, come back to the, to the God of your ancestors, they plead with them. But as the people refuse, the prophets begin to write their messages. They begin to document the historical events that are going on and who is in authority during the time and the conversations and all how they go. God has inspired them to document all of these books. In the northern kingdom, it doesn't go so well for them. 
because just a couple hundred years uh, into it, uh, the people refuse to listen to the Lord, and God raises up the Assyrian army. Assyria comes in and wipes them out, and basically the, the southern kingdom is all that's left of the nation of Israel. They last a couple hundred more years because of partial repentance, but ultimately they do not repent, and God raises up the Babylonian army to come in and to basically um, wipe out the southern kingdom of Israel. However, instead of the southern kingdom being completely annihilated, what God does is he, he um, gets the Babylonians to take all the people from the land of Egypt into a place called Babylon for 70 years. So for an entire generation, you have people that are supposed to be in a land that God promised to give them. And because of their rebellion, God has allowed an enemy to come in and to take them until a generation can pass. In that 70 years, there's a prophet named Ezekiel. There's a prophet named Daniel that live in the Babylonian captivity. They document all that God's doing. They document the events that are, that are transpiring. This is why when you read the book of Daniel, it has like the most bizarre names. You can't even pronounce Belshazzar and different things like that. It's because he is living in, in the land of Babylon. They, they, they have a different culture. They have a different language. Everything is unique, but God is still working, and he is still providentially writing his scriptures that we have today through the men and the women of God during that time. So after the 70 years, God uh, moves on the hearts of the kings of, of all the nations, and they begin to allow the Israelites to go back to their homeland. And so in like three different huge caravans, most of the people start going back in phases to their own personal land. And God raises up people like Nehemiah and Ezra. And as they're going back to their homeland, these men are documenting everything that's happening and how the Lord is working even in these situations. It's really an amazing thing. And so in about the year 400 BC, okay, we um, hit this moment where in history, which we call the intertestamental period. It's basically the period of time before the, or between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's 400 years of silence. There is no authoritative word from the Lord. I mean, there, I'm sure there were words from the Lord, but there was, there was nothing like the inspired word of God that was coming from the prophets during these 400 years. And around four, five, six BC, all of a sudden, the Messiah shows up. Jesus is born, and he lives a sinless life, born of a virgin. He ultimately gives his life on a cross. He, uh, he dies. He goes to the tomb for three days. He is risen from the dead. And his people begin to write the events of his life and everything that transpired in the Gospels. The people that wrote after him, like Paul and Titus, these men wrote documents and letters to circulate through all the different churches. And ultimately what ends up happening is you have a situation where the Christian churches in the New Testament, they have an Old Testament Bible or an Old Testament version of the Bible, but they don't have a New Testament version of the Bible. For 300 years, they don't really have a New Testament Bible. They've got, they've got letters that have been circulated from Paul and others. They have parts and pieces of, of, of scrapment and papyrus that, that have been kind of, you know, just thrown around. But in the midst of all this, there are a lot of other writings that are going out from Christians that are teaching wrong things. And so about 300 years into it, God moves on the hearts of the spiritual leaders of, of the Christian church. And they decide we need to seek the Lord because we need God to show us what scripture, what is inspired by his spirit and what is not inspired by his spirit. And so through the process of time, these men, uh, they don't decide what the scriptures are. They discover what the scriptures are at different councils and as the Holy Spirit leads. And so as we, um, as we, we venture past that 300-year mark, um, the Roman Catholic Church begins to really take over the scene for, for a really, really long time, hundreds of years. And in the 1500s, um, there, was, uh, there was a lot of issues going on within the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not saying that those issues exist today, 
But I'm saying there was a lot of corruption in, in this um, time of history. And so there were, um, there were the, the, the sales of indulgences and people, you know, they could kind of pay off their sin. Um, but one of the main issues facing the people is that they were not accessible to God's word. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church kind of said, well, our spiritual leaders can have copies of the scripture and we will tell you what the scriptures say, but we don't want individuals to have copy of scripture because they may interpret it differently than what we want them to interpret it. And so in the process of time, God raises up a man of God named Martin Luther. And it's not Martin Luther King Jr., okay? Although Martin Luther King Jr. was named after this Martin Luther, okay? Uh, So Martin Luther is raised up. And what we learned through history is that there came a point in time where he was so filled with passion and and there were so many issues that that were going awry. But one of the main issues was that the Catholic Church would not only allow the distribution of God's word, but they would not allow it to be translated into other languages so people could become Christians. So Martin Luther rises up and he says, this ain't right. Something's got to change. And so um, history tells us on, on Halloween in the 1500s, 1517, Martin Luther goes and he writes an incredible document called the 95 Thesis. He nails it to the church wall. And, and all of a sudden, it is the dawn of what we call the Reformation. We call it the Reformation because it was a system, a highly political, organized religious system that was reformed into something that looks very much like the Christian church does today. And so as we, um, as we look at the reformers throughout church history, as we look at men and women of God who tried to preserve the right for every human being to be able to access God's word, what we find is that history was not kind to them. We find that the spiritual leaders of their day would oftentimes murder them uh, in, in, in the idea that they were representing God. There is a, um, a story of a guy named John Huss, and he was, a, um, he was just a profound man of God, and um, history says that um, he, he was one of the ref, uh, reformers and he stood for all that the reformers stood for and he believed that we should be able to have access to God's word and all these kind of things. And what we find out is that one day he shows up after fighting the, the organized church, he shows up one day and they meet him in the hallway. They meet him with a razor blade because as he is a monk, there is a very distinct hairstyle. It's called the tonsure a very distinct head uh, hairstyle where it's shaved on top, but there's hair all around. They meet him in the hall and they shave his tonsure. They get a paper crown and they decorate it with demons. They put it on his head and they march him to a bundle of sticks where they're going to set him on fire. As he's walking out to the bundle of sticks, he passes by um, many of his books and many of the, the articles that he has written, and they have already set them on fire, and they force him to see his, his legacy burn as he goes to this bundle of sticks. It was a horrific, it was a horrific thing. As a matter of fact, they hated the reformers so much that were told that they went after his ashes had burned to the ground. They had, they had done away with all the wood and all this kind of stuff. They went and they dug out the earth because there were ashes in the earth and they put the ashes in the lake so that hopefully no one would ever remember these men of God again. The reason I think it's important for us to understand this is because not only is it a fascinating story, not only did, do, do we get this through incredible, miraculous provision, but this book has a very bloody history. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went into getting us the copies that we have so readily available today. And we need to be a people that remember and understand that it is quite the treasure for us. And so today what I want to do is uh, I want to I jump in in the little bit of time we have uh, left, and I want to talk to you some things about what we believe about the Bible. I want to talk to you about some of the benefits that we have from Scripture, and then at the end we'll talk a little bit of, of, of practical in nature, okay? When we talk about what we believe uh, about the Bible, um, we believe that the Bible is what we call special revelation, Okay, there, there are two general terms for how God reveals himself to humanity. The first is, is kind of like this overarching macro term that we call general revelation. This means that, that any human on the planet, the Bible says Paul wrote, he said, look, people from the beginning of time 
have been able to see the invisible attributes of God through nature. And so there's no excuse. They know that there's a creator. They know that there's a God. They know that there's something in existence. It's general revelation. We have it through our internal you know, morality. We have this internal moral code. We have a conscience. These are the general revelations of God. Specific generation or, uh, revelation of God is when God says, look, I've given you general revelation so that you can understand there's a God, there's a creator. Special revelation is when I show you who that God is. And so in special revelation is when God reveals himself through supernatural terms. The Bible is the, the primary supernatural term aside from Jesus Christ is the supernatural uh, form that God reveals who he is to people. And so we've got to understand that, that the Bible, um, it, is, it is not just this idea that uh, the Bible is, is, is similar or on equal level with another sacred writing such as the Quran, etc. Uh, this is a very distinct special revelation of the God of the universe. He has shown us not just that there's a creator, but he's shown us who he is as the creator. And so we believe that it's, it is special revelation to us. We secondly believe that it is authoritative. In other words, we believe that, that scripture has the final say on all matters, okay? So we are a, we are a Pentecostal church, and we believe that, that God spoke perfectly through his word that, that we're able to, to open and read, but we also believe that God continues to speak to people today. We believe God speaks to us through promptings or uh, dreams or vision or, or through a prophetic voice or, or different things. We believe that God can still speak today, but we believe that this scripture is authoritative. And what that means is that if, if we have dreams, we measure them against God's word. If someone gives me a prophetic word, I don't just take it and run, I measure it against God's word. If it does not come into alignment with God's word, I dismiss it, okay? So I remember when I was growing up, I grew up outside of Pensacola, Florida, and um, I remember in, in the 90s, I was just a teenager, um, but, but when I was, I was young, we would go and we would stand on Ninth Avenue in Pensacola, and we would stand across from an abortion clinic, and, and we would uh, silent protest. We weren't like chanting and throwing things, but uh, we were silently protesting, and, and we would pray and different things like that. And I remember when I, when I was 13, I remember that there was a pastor that was living in Pensacola, and he went to that abortion clinic, and he shot the doctor that was performing the abortions, and he shot the man that was protecting the doctor at that time. He killed them both dead in their tracks. When he was arrested, he was put on death row. Later, he was executed. I think in uh, 2003, I think he was executed. But when he was interviewed and asked why he did it, he said that the Lord had spoken to him to go and to murder this man. Now, if this man would have understood that the scripture is authoritative, he would have taken what he thought the Lord said and measured it against God's word. If it did not align, which it would not have aligned, that doctor would still be alive today. Okay, so we believe that it is authoritative. We submit everything to God's word. Thirdly, we believe that it is divinely inspired. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, all scripture is God breathed. Okay, so Paul is saying, listen, it's not that the people wrote it and then God breathed on it and made it holy. No, it's the opposite. God breathed to produce the word. It was divine from the beginning. Like I said earlier, when we, when we came up with the, the, the canon, is what we call it, the, the formation of these 66 books, it wasn't that the men decided that these were the authoritative words. It was that they discovered by God's spirit that they were the authoritative writings. And so um, we believe it's divinely inspired. We believe what it's called um, inerrant. This is the idea that scripture is without error. Um, I remember uh, Pastor Glenn and I are, are a part of a graduate program, and um, one of our professors, whom I won't name, I don't even know if he still works at the university, but um, one time we were uh, sitting in a lecture, and uh, he was talking to us about, um, about the story of the Bible, and he was talking about just you know, how, how we needed to embrace the overarching ideas of the Bible, and 
And he made a statement um, that, honestly, it, it really bothered me. And, and I know that he loves the Lord. I know that he's a Christian. I know that he's going to heaven. Um, but this is what he said. He said, in our current Christian culture, especially in the West, he said, we are overly obsessed with discovering the words of God instead of understanding the story of God. And I think I understand what he was trying to say. I really do think I understand what he was trying to say. But it bothered me because you can't have the story of God without the words of God. And one word can make an enormous difference. If you're married, you know this, right? I mean, a word can make an enormous difference in, in an outcome. It's, it's one thing if the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's another thing if it says, for God so loved the world that he gave one of his sons. Big, it makes all the difference in the world, right? And so it's so important that we understand that God's word, it is perfected. It was, uh, as pastor always says, it was preserved from error. It was perfected in its form. And we, by the grace of God, had that today. I think Jesus would, would even agree. He was having a conversation with the Sadducees one day. And he made this statement. He said, not one iota and not one dot will pass from the scriptures before it is all fulfilled. A dot and an iota, what he was saying, he was saying, listen, even the smallest stroke in the Hebrew alphabet, it's, it's, it's accurate. It's perfect. The scribes did their job as God oversaw and made sure that they would. And so, so I think we've got to be just, just real careful, okay? I think we, we have to be real careful um, when, when we talk about the inerrancy of God's word. It's important that we remember that God preserved it from error. Fourthly, what we believe is that it is, it is infallible. This means that we believe that scripture will not fail. It can be trusted. It is reliable. And finally, we believe that scripture is sufficient. Uh, this means that uh, we believe that, that Scripture gives us everything that we need to know about God for salvation, okay? Now, let me say this. God gives us more than the Bible, okay? He gives us his presence. He continues to speak to us. But if he didn't, the Bible would be sufficient to know God and to know salvation, okay? So the Bible is ultimately sufficient enough, but God in his goodness he continues to communicate with us on a personal, specific level as well, okay? All throughout Christian history, all throughout religious history, no matter what religion you have, there, there, are, different, uh, there are different pockets of, of that particular religion. In, in, in scripture, they're called sects, okay? Not sex, but sects, okay? S-E-C-T-S. Different pockets of different religions. So in, in Judaism, uh, in Jesus' day, you had like the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees, right? And they ultimately believed, you know, ultimately they believed the most important things, right? But they differed on a lot of different things. Like the Sadducees did not believe there was a, a, an ultimate resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees did believe that, okay? But ultimately they believed in Jehovah God. They, they believed all the things that they needed to believe. Today, we live in Christian America, which has an unending number of pockets of the Christian faith. There are an endless supply of people that believe a whole lot of different things that the Bible says based on how they interpret it, okay? I remember when I was, um, I remember when I was in sixth grade, uh, that was, yeah, it was a long time ago. I remember, um, I remember I had a girlfriend in sixth grade, I think I was, I think I was 12. And my girlfriend was a little bit older than I was, okay? She was kind of like, she was kind of like a bad girl, you know? She was a little bit older, but, you know, held back and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, <laughs> I remember I was, uh, we were walking down the hall one day and down the sixth grade hall, she probably wasn't allowed to be in there, but we were walking down the hall and um, she smarted off to another, another boy that was in sixth grade. And, uh, he turned around and he called her a name that I can't say right now, uh, but he called her a name. And in my chivalrous, uh, heroic nature, I decided he can't say that to her, right? And so I dropped my backpack and I took off my jacket and I walked over to him and I said, you can't say that to her. I'm sure I said some other things, right? So after I got back up off the floor, um, <laughs> 
I realized that I had just been beaten up and humiliated by one of the smallest boys in sixth grade. I was, I'm tall now. I was tall then, too. But he whipped me pretty good. And I remember thinking in that moment, I had an epiphany. I don't know if it was the Lord or I don't know if it was just experiential. But I remember getting up off the floor and I thought this. I thought, you know what? There are some things worth fighting for. And there's some things not worth fighting for. And she ain't it. Right? And I've carried that with me my whole life. Right? I mean, today I fight for my wife. But I understand there are some things, and mature believers understand this, there are some things worth fighting for. And there are some things that are just not worth fighting for. And when it comes to scriptures and theology and the things that we believe, um, there, there are some things worth fighting for. And then there are some things that are not worth fighting for. And there, there are some different tiers I, I want to just briefly cover with you uh, just, just really quickly. Um, there, there's a category that I would consider non-negotiables. These are the issues that I would say we fight for until death, right? These are the things uh, at the center of the Christian faith, the deity of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that Jesus was, was God, by default, you are not a Christian, okay? That is, that is the essence of the Christian faith. And so, so you have a non-negotiable like that, the Trinity, uh, the triune God, the blood atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, the, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. All these things are very orthodox Christianity. They are the essence of Christianity and they are worth fighting for every day, okay? The second tier is, is what I would call somewhat negotiable okay, or sometimes negotiable. These are, these are elements of the Christian faith that, that we hold very, very sure to, okay, but we don't necessarily have to agree with another person so that they go to heaven or, or we go to heaven. There, there are things like this, and I, I think Pastor may have mentioned something about this a few weeks ago, but it's, uh, for instance, when you talk about the different ways that people can be water baptized, Right? So you've got some people that, that want to sprinkle and some people want to you know, throw water on you and some people don't know you've got to go all the way under and get held down and then come up. You know? and, uh, there, there are different ways to be water baptized, but it's not always worth fighting for. Now, I think water baptism, the, the command of Christ that all of his followers should be, be baptized, I think that's worth fighting for. But how it's done, the manner that it's done in, I don't think it's worth fighting for. I think it may be worth having a very difficult conversation with somebody about, but I don't know that I'm going to get all up in arms. Uh, these are the type of issues that I can agree to disagree without losing fellowship with them and without worrying about them losing their salvation or me losing my salvation, right? So for instance, um, our church, we, we believe in, in, in the infilling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the gift of tongues for every person. We believe that that is available for us. We, we really believe that, okay? But I also understand there are a lot of Christian believers that do not believe that, and guess what? They are still going to heaven one day, right? And we'll probably be living right beside them, okay? So, so I, I think it's, un, it's, it's one of those things. Now, I would have a very difficult conversation with somebody if they disagreed with me on it, but I'm not going to lose fellowship over it. They're not going to lose their salvation. I'm not going to lose my salvation. So that's kind of like the second tier of negotiable. You got, you got things I would, I would all day fight for. There are some things hard conversation for. And then you got things on the third tier, which are, are just, they're always negotiable. And ultimately, we really shouldn't care. Okay, uh, these are things like cultural issues. Should the pastor wear a suit or skinny jeans? Who cares, right? Um, should we, uh, you know, I, I remember I brought a guest to our church one time and they said, I, I can't believe you guys drink coffee in your sanctuary. And, and I thought, you shouldn't be concerned about what you're bringing in physically to the house of God. You need to be concerned about what you're bringing in spiritually to the house of God, you know? And so, so but anyway, I wasn't going to have that conversation because it just wasn't worth it to me because that's a cultural thing. And I don't want to dishonor them. If in their conscience, they don't want to drink coffee in God's house, who am I to violate their conscience? I'm not, that's, that's not my place. And so I'm not going to have that conversation because there are a lot of things that ultimately really just don't matter. But you know, there, there are a lot of people that feel like those are the only things that matter. And they'll go to the table over everything they disagree with, and it is just, just hellfire and brimstone about every single thing. And if you don't agree with them, then it's hell for you. I'm just telling you, that's not the way of the Lord, 
Okay, that is not the way of scripture. And so we've got to understand there's some things worth fighting for. There are some things worth having a really hard conversation with, and there are some things that you should never have a conversation with and just kind of walk away, okay? Um, so, so those are the most important things that, that's kind of the categories for the most important things we believe about the Bible. Now, real quickly, let me talk to you about how the scriptures benefit us as individuals and as a congregation. I'm gonna zip through this because you can read them from your, for yourself, um, but let me just give you a quick overview. We understand from 1 Peter 2 that when we read scripture, it feeds our souls. We understand from uh, the psalmist that uh, the, the scriptures say that, that the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So we understand when we engage with God's word, he gives us direction for life. We understand from Jeremiah, ironically from Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he says that when I tasted your word, it filled my soul with joy. And so we understand when we embrace God's word, it fills us with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The scripture reminds us of the gospel, as pastor always says, that I am a big sinner, but he is a big savior, and I need to put my camp there, okay? We remember that it reminds us um, of the heart of God. We need to remember that as we, uh, as we memorize God's word, as we put God's word in our heart, it purifies our heart. We understand that the scripture, as we read it, it, it assists us in spiritual warfare. In the, in the wilderness, when Christ was tempted, he used the word of God against the enemy. He didn't pitch a fit and say what he wanted. He used the word of God. We also understand when we, when we read scripture that it strengthens our confidence. It builds our faith in the Lord. Okay? Now, I want to jump through um, uh, just real quickly I want to go from the benefits that God gives us to a kind of a different level. It's still something that God gives to us, but it's kind of on a different plane. And what it is, is that as we embrace God's word, it gives us what we call a biblical worldview. Okay, and this is what that means. It means that as I am a maturing Christian, everything in my life I am going to increasingly view through the lens of Scripture. Right? So it's going to be a filter for me. Okay? So, so every time that uh, I'm, I'm driving down the road and I have the radio on and there's a pastor and he's teaching something, I am taking what he says and I'm not just like, oh, that's good because it sounds good. I'm taking that, I'm filtering it through the scripture to make sure that I'm not being deceived. Okay? Listen to me. People can, listen, people can take God's word and make it say anything that they want to say. And if we don't have, if we are not educated in God's word, we'll fall for it anytime, okay? Frank Sinatra, I don't know if he was a Christian or not, okay? I, I really don't know, but, but listen, listen to what he said. One time he said, um, alcohol may be the enemy of all mankind, but the Bible says to love your enemy, okay? So what he was doing, right, and I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was a joke, okay? But what he was doing is he was forming the scripture to say what he wanted it to say, not what it actually says. And so we, we've got to make sure that, that we are educated so that we can not be led astray, okay? Uh, the scripture teaches us all kind of, of different things as we filter these things, how we deal with our finances, we filter them through the scripture, how we vote, we filter it through the scripture, how we vote, we filter it through the scripture. And um, how we vote, we also filter that through the scripture. It instructs us how we treat our spouses. We filter how we discipline our children through the scriptures. We, we, we filter everything that we do through the scriptures to ensure that we are honoring the Lord and we are growing in Christ and not being led astray. Okay? So, for the last five minutes, I want to talk to you about some practical things regarding Bible reading. If you are at this level of maturity and you are like checked out, that's totally fine. Okay. I get that. But for some of us, it is difficult for us to maintain the discipline to stay in God's word as often as we ought. Okay. And that's okay. We're, we're human. We're, we're broken. We, we're all screwed up. Okay. At the end of the day, we're all messed up and we all need some help. And so all I want to do is just help us say, look, if you've fallen off the wagon, I want to give you some ways that maybe you can help get back on the wagon, okay, and, and begin ingesting God's word again, okay? So, so um, I want to talk to you just for a couple minutes about how we hear and how we heed the word of God, okay? Listen, 
Every time that we open the scriptures and we read as individuals or we read corporately in a setting like this, something supernatural is occurring, okay? Something deeply supernatural is occurring. In the book of Nehemiah, uh, there's, there are events that transpire when the, when the people, when Ezra brought his caravan of people back into the land, they finally were able to access the word of God again after being in Babylon and not having access for so long. And the Bible says in, I think it's Nehemiah 8, that Ezra stands up and he opens the word of God. The Bible says he steps up on a platform before all the people and he begins to read the word of God, just word for word. And as he begins to read the word of God, people fall on their faces and they weep aloud because something supernatural is occurring in that moment. I used to get so offended when I used to, I preach a lot and, and I, I love my call, I'm so grateful. Um, but there would be a lot of times where I would preach a sermon and somebody would come to me, you know, very often. And they would say, um, man, Pastor Corey, thank you so much. That, man, that was so awesome. And, you know, me, I'm like, thank you. Um, it's, uh, it's building my confidence. And I appreciate that I did, you know, good in the eyes of the Lord, uh, making me feel good. And, and they would go on to say something. They would say, and especially when you said da-da-da-da-da, and they would say something. And I would be like, I, I never said that. As a matter of fact, I mean, you're not, it's not wrong, but I didn't say anything remotely near that, right? Now it's scriptural and it's right, but I didn't say that. I guess I'll take credit, right? But I used to get so deeply offended. I used to, I, I used to be like, they're not even paying attention, right? They're just making stuff up or, you know, they were like, oh, I need to tell, oh, the Bible's okay, you know, and they'll say something to encourage. But one time a professor told me this, and it, and it really changed my whole perspective of the thing. He said, you know what the problem is? He said, the problem is that you think you're the only one teaching in that moment. He said, do you remember one of, the, one of the titles of the Holy Spirit? He is our teacher. And he said, listen, when you stand in the pulpit, he said, you're teaching, right? And people are receiving. He said, but there's something supernatural that's going on outside of you because the Spirit of God is speaking to people in their own individual language, speaking to them in the way that they need to hear. And I thought, whoo, that was good. Didn't make me feel great, but it is a very true reality. And so we need to understand that something very supernatural is, is, is happening. And because something supernatural is happening, when we come to the word of God, we need to come with an open and willing heart. We need to come with an attitude that says, Father, as I open your word, chisel me. Lord, if there's things in me, cut deep cut wide, but make it quick, right? Chisel me, Lord, so that I can be conformed into the image of Christ to your pleasure, right? Eugene Peterson said that we can't truly understand the Bible until we begin to obey the Bible. And when we begin to obey what scripture says, that supernatural work that's already happening goes to a whole nother level, and we begin to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we need to come to scripture with an open and willing heart. We need to create Bible reading plans, right? I love, I am not this spiritual, but I love when people are like, ah, yes, okay? But can I just, in my heart of hearts, that is not practical, okay? Uh, that is not necessarily spiritual because it is taking something when you may not understand the context of what's going on. Now, I believe God can do that in a moment, but I'm saying that doesn't need to be a common practice for, for the growing, maturing believer. We need to create Bible reading plans. I'm telling you, man, that with, with technology, the YouVersion app, there are millions of Bible reading plans. A quick Google search, you can get Bible reading plans. You can find Bible reading plans that are, you know, a month long or, you know, a year long, chronological, just the prophet's whatever, but it's so important for us to create Bible reading plans. I would even say that it's, it's, it's so important for us to read, to have Bible reading plans, that sometimes we need to lay aside devotionals that are written by incredibly godly men and women, okay? And let me tell you why, okay? I'm not against devotionals. I read devotionals, but, but this is what I want to remind us of. Oftentimes, devotionals are not written to cut deep and wide, they're written to uplift. Yeah. 
And that's why we love them, right? I don't, you know, I, I love to be uplifted, okay? But I want to remind us that, that in, in the book of Joshua, we're told that Joshua, as he stood before the people of Israel, that he opened the word of God to them and he read all the words of the law to them, the blessings and the curses, right? And the reason scripture reminds us of that is so that we understand, yeah, we need to be uplifted, but sometimes we need to be cut. And sometimes we need God to really do his deep work in us. So I'm not against devotionals or anything like that. I'm just saying a Bible reading plan is, is really important. It's really amazing. We need to make sure we carve out time for reading. Um, all these kind of things I'm going to skip over. You can read later. Will you stay with me real quick? Because I am already one minute late. Next Wednesday, we are going to uh, jump into the Trinity. And I am incredibly excited about that. Uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, but I want to I pray, uh, pray a prayer of blessing over you tonight um, as I tell you the story. I, I was reading scripture with, with my kids the other night, and we we're closing out one of, one of the gospels. And as we read, it was, it was speaking of Jesus on the road of, uh, of Emmaus, and as he was walking with the other two disciples, and they didn't realize that it was Jesus until afterwards. And after they had walked on the road, the Bible says that, that as they walked, that Jesus was explaining to them about the Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures, okay? And after Jesus revealed who he was to them, he vanishes, and they're stuck there with, you know, it's the two disciples, and they're stuck with their, their other compadres, and they're just astonished. And this is what they said. They said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened the scripture to us? Didn't it burn inside of us when the word of God explained to us the word of God? When he supernaturally opened our eyes to see things that we otherwise may not have known. And I'm telling you, I think it's so important for us to be a people that hunger for God's word because listen to me, there are things he wants to reveal to us that we need so deeply and so desperately that may not come otherwise outside of ingesting his word. Amen. So let me pray for you tonight and then uh, you can be dismissed in the monsoon outside. Um, but Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the men and women throughout human history that you have used and have given blood, sweat, and tears to put into our hands this precious gift, this treasure. And my prayer, Lord, over your people is that you would put in all of us a new sense of reverence. We don't worship the Bible, but Father, may we revere it. May we honor it. May we treasure it with all that we have. And I want to pray tonight, God, that as we begin to, to open your scriptures individually, I want to pray, Lord, just like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, that, Lord, you would burn within our hearts as your Holy Spirit unveils scripture before our eyes. As we look in the mirror of your word, would you do that deep work of your spirit, I pray, over all of us. Help us to be everything that you've created us to be. May we fulfill your destiny for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. The Lord bless you so much. Apologize to my wife for keeping you so long. We look forward to seeing you all Sunday. Try to stay dry. <laughs>